Hi, everyone. This is Charlie Pacello. I'm your host of the council. And boy, do we have a very, very distinguished guest for us today as we are here for the Veterans Summit special series that the council has been in collaboration with the Trauma Sensitive Awareness Foundation. Uh, help you to uh, find out some of the best resources and healing modalities for PTS, TBI, um, sleep disturbance, flashbacks, family uh, problems, and so much more. And uh, this has been an honor and a privilege to be a part of this series, and we are so excited to introduce our guest today, uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He has spent his professional life studying how children and adults adapt to traumatic experiences. He translates emerging findings from neuroscience and attachment research to develop and study a range of effective treatments from traumatic stress and developmental trauma in children and adults. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Body Keeps the Score. Folks, this is one of my favorite books. It's all I've highlighted it everywhere. It has inspired me. It has moved me. It, it showed me things about my own trauma that I had experienced, and it made sense. This is the book that I needed to help to make sense about the things that I didn't know what was going on in my brain and my body. I can't recommend it more highly. His website is uh, www.besselvanderkolk.com. Welcome to the council, Dr. Vanderkoek. A pleasure to be here. <laughs> Sir, it is an honor to, to meet you, to speak with you. And I would love for you to share with us a little bit about your first experiences working with veterans. Well, um, the opening chapter of my book is that first encounter, actually. And it's very dramatic. I'm very pleased that I remember it. Um, and that's that. Uh, um, I started to work for the VA and the reason why I went to work for the VA is because I wanted to have very intensive therapy myself, which all therapists should have, <laughs> and the only person who pay for that would be the VA. And so people said, don't join the VA because the VA is all about people wanting to get compensation. I said, well, that's why I'm joining the VA also, so that I'll, I'll be at home. Huh? Um, and so. I went to the VA, not expecting much, and I met all these really interesting guys who were all about my age, oftentimes very good athletes, very smart, etc., etc. And something had happened to them. Hmm. And something had happened to their bodies. And these were very powerful athletic people, and they looked collapsed, and they looked sort of unengaged. And then something would happen. And they would blow up and punch a hole in the wall and, and become extremely angry. And that was their chief complaint most of the time. And around the same time, I was beginning to have a family and I had babies at home who also threw temper tantrums. And when my baby threw a temper tantrum, I wasn't very worried about it because I knew something was going to happen to make those brains grow and to make it happen. And then I met these guys who were like 32 years old, something like that. And they did the same thing as these babies. They said like, what the hell happened here that something didn't get? So that, that was my interest in, in neurobiology. Uh, and then this opening story is of a guy who came in after the 4th of July, 
Uh, Fourth of July was big day for veterans because of all the fireworks. And uh, he was completely had been drinking in his office. He comes in, he looks disheveled. He tells me about his nightmares. I'm a typical psychiatrist who hears one little thing and says, I have the answer to that. So I, I know how to treat nightmares. I give him a pill. He comes back two weeks later. He says, uh, I didn't take your pills. And I say, why not? Offended, like a good doctor, you're supposed to follow orders. Um, <laughs> and he said, I realized that if I stop having my nightmares, the death of my friends will have been in vain. I need to be a living memorial to my friends who died in Vietnam. And that statement, even as I say it, like, I get tears while I just thinking about it, like, like, oh my God. And so, and then he tells me the story that his father fought in Patton's army in the Second World War. Uh, father was very proud of his military service, but his father could never pay attention to his kids. And his father would always say, my friends who died in the war were better than any of you. So he talks about how his dad got stuck on his dead comrades. And here, one generation later, he is stuck on his dead comrades also. And I go like, wow, this is huge. And it has to do with loyalty, it has to do with love, it has to do with revenge, it has to do with guilt. And so at the same time, we're developing these biological models of PTSD. And it's very clear, it's much more complex than that. It has to do with identity, it has to do with belonging, it has to do with so many things. And so I just get blown away by, by those guys. And mm -hmm. I very much identify with these guys. I myself as a conscientious objector. Uh, I didn't tell that to my guys I was working with, uh, but very, before too long, they made me one of their own. And they had to be around there, so they gave me a, a Marine Corps uh, corporal's uniform, so I could be one of them. <laughs> and I really got a real appreciation of what they had gone through in a way. But uh, what it really brought home for me is the issue of uh, of a deep sense of belonging and and being part of something bigger than yourself that gets blown up. And that's very hard to leave behind. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that strikes me most, uh, working with veterans then and still to this day, is that uh, when, they, when they marry somebody, the people they marry is very as important as the friends they had in the war. Mm -hmm. The war becomes a very big monster in your head that gets glorified. So I got a lot of respect for the US Marine Corps, but at the same time, you know, I'm a skeptic and I like to make fun of things. And I see all these guys my age driving around with Semper Fi stickers. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's very nice to be in the Marine Corps when you're 18 years old. But what have you done since that time? Uh, and so, uh, yes, I can really appreciate that you are very proud that at one point in your life you did something very important. But if that's the last thing you did, then something has really gone wrong. And so, so I, I get very preoccupied with how can you help people to appreciate what's going on with them, but to also re-engage with the presence. Mm -hmm. And that trauma is, and I, as time goes on, I get to appreciate more that trauma is not so much about the memory of the past, but trauma is about the difficulty engaging 
in a new life and new experience. Mm-hmm. And so later on, I, one of my close friends is Stefan Wolfert, who uh, you should have in your program sometime, uh, who is a, a combat veteran who with terrible PTSD, uh, who um, becomes a Shakespearean actor and who writes a play about his own war experiences using Shakespeare's language. Mm-hmm. Piece of work. And he, he organizes an um, organization called Decruit. And the, the way we connect to each other is that, you know, he says the army was, uh, in this case, the army, uh, uh, was very good in, rec- in recruiting me for the army and preparing me for the army, did a great job, a boot camp, great job in basic training, but I never got decruited for civilian life. And that's very much, to my mind, a very big issue, is how do you reorganize your war-type brain, that brain is very, that's very good for war, but sucks for family life. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> so, so how do you that brain so yeah. you can really enjoy playing with, with your kids on the floor and not on some deep level be reminded about the kid that you blew away in Iraq and be unable to connect with your own kid? Yeah? Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the hard things that, that veterans, that when they come back from war or come back from combat or even service, is how do you start to fit back in? Yeah. And if you've experienced a lot of trauma or if you lost guys, you like you said, that sense of loyalty that we have, that sense of camaraderie, the brotherhood, the sense of love that you feel of being people willing to die for you and you're willing to die for them. That's a huge thing for a human being. Oh. And then when your brain is in those environments, it changes and yeah. so you know it it impacts us how we're able to reconnect with people and that's one of the hardest things that veterans have to do and, and it changes very profoundly and i i i'm always concerned that the that like the va really doesn't pay much attention to the degree to which which brains have been changed by the experience and if you want to go on give me back in life you need to change your brain mm-hmm. back to having a civilian brain and that's a huge challenge it's enormous <laughs> you your brain really gets trained to pick up danger to pick up the little thing to pick up the snipers to pick up uh, you are very good at it but you're not very good at picking up oh the fact that this leaf outside of my window is changing its fall it's beautiful how the how the light is changing it's falling in that <laughs> Well, it is. And, and I think you, in, uh, in a recent uh, uh, cl- class that you had, you talked about how the brain changes and that the perceptions of like uh, where you're at, you know, I think it's um, the fear. You, sh- you showed a slide about how the brain of someone with PTSD at rest almost feels dead inside, that, that when they talk about the trauma, and the part of the brain that makes them, all of a sudden, that part of the brain makes them come alive again and they yeah. go on alert. And yeah. when you compare that to the control or normal brain, you see that it's, it's actually opposite of one another. And this is a recent study that, uh, that you've done. Oh, very recent, yeah. May not have been published even, yeah. yeah. Could you talk more about how this supports some of the things that I think you wrote 30 years ago when you were talking about the Vietnam uh, veterans, because it wasn't a, it very similar to what you were discovering. It's not it's so clinically. So, 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 you know, it's, it's interesting that our technology with brain science is so good. So we have learned a lot in terms of brain science, very exciting, but we haven't really kept up mentally. Mm. Uh, 
our mental understanding of what the process that happens to people and how uh, also mentally your whole mind get changed to not pay attention to uh, to small things and to not get pleasure out of small things uh, that that hasn't been paid much attention to but so what we saw clinically is that indeed um, people only feel alive when they are exposed to trauma a good example is that uh, I've been teaching for about not anymore right now uh, at the at the foundation for advanced journalists at Harvard and so I meet these these war, war journalists who just come back from Syria and Lebanon and the Congo and they see these horrendous things and it just tears them up to talk about it but when they come back come to Cambridge Massachusetts they feel terrible there's nothing happening mm-hmm. and they cannot get their minds about anything nothing mm-hmm. means anything and before too long I get an email from them they're back in the Congo they're back in Syria because when they are in danger they feel alive mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. and you know and that's a real issue it's not like oh you shouldn't feel that way like how the hell do we reorganize people's brains so they can be here and get pleasure out of making breakfast for their kids yeah yeah it's Very very tough and if we don't and that's what i love about your work so much sir is that you've been able to really look and see what's going on inside here and being able to understand though the body has such a huge impact yeah and that the trauma you've defined trauma in these ways that trauma is an event that overwhelms the central nervous system and changes the way you remember and react to things that remind you of it yeah and you've also said that trauma is not the story of something that happened back then. It's the current imprint of that imprint. That's it. And fear living inside of people. Fear and rage and excitement. Uh, I mean, it, it's complex. Uh, and it's, in some ways, it's easier to talk in terms with veterans uh, because it's not hard for a veteran to admit that it was also exciting to be in the war. <laughs> yeah. And I've never felt as alive right. as is happening. And so, so, it's, so the horror and the pleasure are mixed, get mixed together. Yeah. And that, uh, to, to just be able to uh, make that a piece of your past is a, is a huge challenge. <laughs> uh, as, as you know, you know uh, one of my favorite books is uh, Carl Malantis. Have you had Carl Malantis on your show? Not yet. I haven't had him. I know. Yeah. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his book Matterhorn, uh, but he, then he wrote his book What It's Like to Go to War. And it's just a spectacular book. And he talks about all this excitement, etc. And And uh, the journey home is such a tough journey. Tough journey. Well, in the war zone, isn't it? I mean, our brains are combat. It actually changes, like you were talking about, the reward system in our brain. And all it takes is one time for that to be able to happen. Can you explain how that happens and why that's significant to to understand for veterans who are struggling with trying to figure out, you know, how do I fit back in? How, what's wrong with me? What's going on? So. You know, it starts off with basic training. 
as you know, I don't, I've never had, you know, um, it's a very profound experience. And, you know, you have a bunch of pimply, horny, not very well organized little kids. And 12 years later, you have some very competent kids who are able to do stuff, you know. And it, from what I know, it's not a fun experience. But boy, they know more about how to transform somebody into somebody else than anybody else. Huh? I mean, after 12 weeks of basic training, nobody looks like, eh. Everybody's competent and knows what they're doing. And they have a sense of competence. And so, so that's a brilliant piece. The Romans found that out, actually. And I know the history of that very well, actually. Um, it's how the Dutch beat the Spanish in their war of independence by learning about drills and basic training. Uh, um, and, and then, so you have the sense of agency, camaraderie, and that's tied up with the war. What's important here is that the armed services traditionally have been a very powerful force in American life because a lot of kids who came from very bad circumstances were able to go to the army, get rules, get an identity, get skills, etc., etc. And for as long as um, your best friend doesn't get killed, or as long as you know you don't commit atrocities or any of these things that happen, uh, the army is by and large a very positive experience for for most people in the armed forces. Mm -hmm. Because you know, because the other thing that we ignored when we first started talking about PTSD is we said it's all about the war, but of course it isn't all about the war, and we knew that back then also, but we sort of conveniently put <laughs> it is that people join the service oftentimes to escape bad situations. And the data showed that kids who go into the army or the armed forces by and large have much worse childhoods than your average population. And so, so the armed forces is a very good way of helping you to move out of that and to come into the world of predictability, insanity, incompetence, etc., etc. But if on top of that, then you have a war trauma, then you get this combination of what happened to you before and what happens to you in your newfound sense of identity and competence. And as you know, that can create all kinds of very nasty things for people. Oh, yes. And, and if you're not understanding how your memories are recorded and how they're stored in the brain and why the brain records a trauma differently than yeah. a non-traumatic event, um, yeah. because there is a difference between that. And, you know, like a memory of a pleasant vacation, if I'm going to a nice place and I go to... Uh, uh, you know, Italy someplace, and I go to the Piazza Navona back there. I mean, it's a different, uh, different experience. I wish I wish I had nightmares about the Piazza Navona. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so we have it, it records it differently. Um, why does the brain do that? Why is it um, different from a, a, a traumatic brain and versus a non-traumatic? It's, it's, it's a very important question, and I'm impressed how even most scientists don't know this. You know, for a while, during all the false memory controversy, for a little bit, people paid attention to it. Now, the old memory textbooks are back to memories are malleable, and memories change, and uh, we all make up stories in our minds. And, and that's how it is. I'm really impressed with how many details of my life, I remember the story that I tell about it, but I don't remember what happened. You know? uh, <laughs> That's how it is. When I get together with my brothers and we talk about our childhood, we go like, that didn't happen. 
You grew up in a different family than I did, you know, because our memories are very malleable and very distorted. But so something that actually, I was not the first person to find it out, but I did a lot of work in it, is that but what's wrong with trauma is your memories don't get distorted. So it's normal for your memories to get distorted. So most people at a certain time in their life say, oh, I had a happy childhood. Uh, when you go back there and really think about all your details of your childhood, uh, it sucks a good amount of the time. But it doesn't matter because you, you, so you clean things up, you know? And that's, that's what the mind does. It's sort of a little mind sweeper that cleans out the, the stuff and at the end you have a nice narrative about your life. It's all good. Uh, and it turns out that when you get traumatized, these memories become very precise sensory relivings. Yes. So you see the image, huh? you hear the sound, you feel that sensation in your body just like it was. And so in a way, trauma is uh, the normal memory processing to getting distorted, gone awry, and the memories don't get distorted. And so it keeps coming back, just like it was. And you start organizing yourself like, oh, I don't want to feel this anymore. And you do anything to, to push these things away. Huh? Most commonly, alcohol, very much sub supported by the armed services, <laughs> unbelievable amounts of drinking, unbelievable amounts of drugging. And that's how you try to push these things away. And they work. And the weird thing is the data, I don't know what the latest data is. Um, I don't think people are quite as honest these days as we were back in the Vietnam time. I think there's a lot of distortion going on. There's a lot of cleaning up of things. I, I think people don't talk about the real stuff anymore. I, I agree. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Being in it, I remember. <laughs> we did. We covered it up with alcohol. You know, that's what yeah. I, I certainly and, and so, But what we found in Vietnam, for example, is that people who got addicted to heroin in Vietnam came back and they did much better. Because mm. the heroin protected your brain against going into a state of complete panic and craziness and it kept, kept it calm. And most people who were addicted to heroin in Vietnam didn't continue to be addicted in America because you have such a thing as state-dependent learning or state-dependent memory retrieval. So as long as you were not in a jungle with a lot of moisture and uh, birds singing and stuff, the state didn't come back and you didn't feel that stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so that alcohol and drugs are are protective. I mean, you know, they're bad. <laughs> but boy, do they help to dull the pain? Uh, um, and then at some point, you need to come to terms with dealing with the pain. And then the question becomes really, um, the question of trauma is not the original trauma anymore, but you're bracing yourself against feeling all that stuff again. Uh, and because you don't allow yourself to go there, it still sits there and it festers inside of you. Mm -hmm. and so sooner or later, you need to open it up. Uh, but to my mind, you don't open it up the way that the VA opens it up by blasting with you with the memory of the trauma. And you go there very gently and very carefully and in the context of a lot of safety so you can, your body can feel safe, your body can feel calm. And you sort of go like, oh my God, that was so terrible. What happened, what I did, mm -hmm. what I experienced. But 
you can only the only way it's helpful is if you're in a very calm state of mind so you can observe what happened back then with a feeling of self-compassion and if you go back there too fast or too uncontrolled you just relive all that stuff mm-hmm. and it, uh, you just get traumatized which is the essence of a flashback right, right. I mean, is that what the, flashback, the flashback is the sense that i'm reliving it right now and and this is happening and your whole body's reacting you had a video that I recently watched of a woman who was experiencing a flashback and it was like she was back in that place. I mean, she was like, wow, that was so, and so many veterans have that same kind of reaction and response as yeah. being back in the jungle or the desert. And, and, that. and when it happens to you, yeah. feel, you feel like an idiot. You feel ashamed about yourself. You feel embarrassed. You lock yourself up from other people because you don't want people to see how out of control you get and so then you get this incredible alienation from the people around you and then the only people who you feel safe with are people who have gone through the same experience as you did which has its pros but the thing against it is you get more and more locked up in that identity of i'm a combat veteran who has ptsd well, and then it's, you know, not recognizing and not understanding how the brain works, like what, you, what you've done in your work. It really, it highlighted and just made sense. It's like, there's nothing wrong with me. My brain has changed. <laughs> my body has changed. My, my, I've been impacted by this. And that's what I love. And I think that your, your, your book is titled, The Body Keeps the Score. And because of your work, we now know that the trauma is stored in the body. It's in the body. Yeah, it's lived out in the body. It's lived uh, out in the body. Yeah, it, it's lived out in heartbreaking, gut-wrenching sensations, basically. It's lived, it's lived, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that goes into yoga and qigong and tai chi and all those things that are actually extremely helpful. Feeling uh, 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 so, so, But the, the critical issue is you try to run away from it. At the same time, you feel alive when you go there. And so you get, you get this very complex relationship to being at the war. Like every guy I've met who's a combat veteran, um, they feel so proud and they feel so angry at the same time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, oh God, it's behind me. I can go on with my life. <laughs> it's always like, there's a tremendous, pull towards it at the same time. Huh? Um, and so, so how do you, how do you say, yeah, that was an ex- interesting experience. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> a, these days uh, we do MDMA therapy, uh, ecstasy, psychedelic therapy. And actually mm-hmm. it turns out psychedelics are, looks very good in terms of helping people to get in that state of, of saying, yeah, that's what happened to me. It's not fun to go back there. It's not, you know, like nothing wonderful about it. But the medications makes it just safe enough for you to feel this is what happened. I was 18 years old. I was 19. I did what I could. And then you get the self-compassion of this poor guy. Mm-hmm. He was so committed, so hardworking. And yet that went wrong, and 
I wish I could have helped him, but I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Just an 18-year-old kid. So you need to rearrange this relationship to yourself in a way. Is that, is, so that's why we need to deal with the body, is because of that orientation. And when we're working with traumatized people, um, you know, when, are there certain things in therapy, certain things that we can do that will be helpful in healing the trauma that we've experienced in the body? Well, I think, you know, I think martial arts, uh, as, as developed in China and, and Japan, were developed to help, you know, they're, they're crazy warlike people also over there, you know? <laughs> and so, but it's, to me is that other cultures develop other techniques to help people. Mm -hmm. so I think uh, some of these Japanese techniques of taiko drumming and, and kendo, and this very careful sword fighting, and it really helps your body to organize itself and to be focused and to be calm and to learn to really control the internal core and then get your muscles back in an organized way, in a flailing way, as you're in trauma. Um, of course, nobody has studied uh, martial arts because the world is run by psychologists. Psychologists, they yak and give people drugs. <laughs> so it's, it's terrible. I know. It's just like... There's so many beautiful therapies. You did one on yoga as well, and I, I one of the pathways I did was yoga that yeah. helped to get me on body. And you did an amazing study on yoga. So we, we, you know, it's very hard to get these things funded, and so finally we did. And then it turned out that yoga was, uh, in a very chronic people, was more effective than any medication that anybody ever studied. Wow. And you know, published in a nice psychiatric journal, and of course, then you hope that medication clinics will tra be transformed to the yoga studios. Of course, that never happens. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and people are, are married to, hey, we need to yak. They say, oh, that's just stupid new age stuff. That you should be doing it. But of course, working with the body and making feel calm is critical. And who knows that again? Boot camp where you march together and you sing together and you do things in unison and you get this tremendous sense of rhythmicity with other people. Yeah. And that's, you know, I love the songs of the, of the U.S. Marine Corps. I have a record of it. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Go from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. You feel strong, you feel proud. And so singing with people and moving with people does give you a sense of agency and power. Yes. And to my mind, that is what you need to use to transform people back into a civilian life also. I think that's such a big part when you were just mentioned, because that sense of agency and that sense of rhythm, you know, we get in the military and we feel powerful. And one of the signature features of trauma is the feeling of powerlessness. Absolutely. You, you, you I mean, no sense of agency, you feel immobile, yeah. uh, and it's like paralyzing. And yeah. anybody who's like, you can't do anything, I can't protect myself. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And to complete, like, what the hell, like, like not giving up, you, you give up. Yes. That's the trauma. That, that's nothing. Immobilization is at the core. So how do we but evoke they, that? They, do. they keep people moving, even when they're scared. Yeah. It's yeah, brilliant, it's you know? <laughs> yeah, it does. You face your fears, you're like, yeah, they keep going, and then you're like, and it's, 
but then we have to it, it catches up to us and so how do we regain uh, a sense of agency and moving traumatized people traumatized veterans towards action see and to my mind there's many different ways and so we come across different things i happen to love theater <laughs> we're in the same i love okay <laughs> yes <laughs> you know, in theater you need to embody another identity so you you can you know what it feels like to be somebody else and then you need to say these lines that can be very upsetting for you but you need to say your lines and you become part of a, of a new group of people just like in the military you're part of your acting platoon and if you don't show up for your play rehearsal the play doesn't go on mm -hmm. you're a necessary person what happens after you come home from the war as a soldier nobody needs you nobody wants you you're just this crazy person who came back from this so the, the sense of of belonging and being an important part of the whole deal is missing but once you join uh, a music group or to my mind even better acting and you become part of the system and you need to embody different roles mm. and that's why I'm involved in quite a few multi-Shakespearean acting groups where you get to uh, say things like let's say one of my favorite lines Lady Macbeth said as she blackmails her husband and says basically says uh, if you don't kill your, your boss the king I'll never have sex with you again uh, um, this poor guy he doesn't want to kill the general and so he doesn't want to do it and wife shorts him on and she says to him if he had also resembled my father I would have done the deed myself and so you play that role of this evil lady uh, and you say who is your father and you get to feel if he had so resembled my father you get to feel the lines and say my father oh my father did a terrible thing if he had also resembled my father I would have done the deed myself did you ever think about killing your dad does your dad know how angry you are with him and so you embody these roles and you really very deeply feel it in your body mm -hmm. and and you get help to really tolerate very intense emotions and to act them out in a very controlled way well i love the theater and that's one of the things that i did my master's work on was on using theater the way the ancient greeks did uh because the ancient greeks they were veterans guys that wrote those plays were yep generals and foot soldiers and it was to achieve catharsis within for both survivors and the community and, and I really saw it huh? mm -hmm. that's the other part is that you know uh, right now in our society you go off to, to war and people really basically don't know what's going on with you you know they know what happens on Netflix but they don't know what happens with you and so your story doesn't get told mm -hmm. and certainly with the professional army right now uh, now everybody says oh the military is so great you get bored first but in fact it's a completely different segment of, of the society and and you don't get to play out for people this is what happened to me this is my experience and I think that's another we do theater groups with inner city kids also and have them write their plays and to say this is what my life is like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to tell people this is what I went through. Mm -hmm. 
to embody it and to play each other's roles and to not only play your own role but to play if somebody, some, somebody else and say that's what you went through and mm -hmm. to feel that you're not alone in this and people have different experiences very rich it gives people an opportunity to really look stand back and be the observer of their life yep. and to almost watch it as a character in a in a story and yep. in a movie and you're actually getting to watch it and see it and it I believe, from my experience of the theater, it evokes compassion. You feel compassion for that person on the stage. And indeed, and that, that capacity to look at yourself from somewhat of a distance is a critical element of getting your life together. Mm -hmm. But when you feel traumatized, you're in it. And somebody says, oh, let's think about what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you need to develop that capacity indeed to, to observe yourself huh? and to really say, oh, you're at it again, Vessel. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's such an important part of helping us to, to gain self-regulation, to gain yeah, regulation yeah. of our emotions again. And especially if we're living in, in a survival mode, um, we don't have a, a friendly relationship. We're disconnected from our body, our emotions. Uh, we're living in that trauma, which is pre-verbal. Uh, and we're caught up on that. And so if we don't have self-regulation, how can we learn how to self-regulate without having to resort to things like alcohol, things right. like uh, medications, those kinds of things? What can we do? Let, let me put in a little plug there, because huh? that, that was actually one of the really important discoveries that I made for myself, at least. And that is that we have inborn systems inside of ourselves to regulate ourselves and when you have kids and you're a thoughtful parent you teach these kids let's sing now good good kindergarten teachers know it i say now we're going to take a little nap and now we're going to sing a little bit and now we're going to make some drawings and now we're going to move and throw basketballs and so there's things we can do to regulate ourselves mm -hmm. and so uh, you wanted to ask me for at the end for my dream for the future I'll tell it to you now. My dream for the future is that in every school in America, they teach the four R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, and self-regulation. And self-regulation mm -hmm. is a course starting in kindergarten. And every year, you learn more techniques on how can I own myself, regulate myself, calm myself down, uh, both scientifically and experientially. See, let's see what happens when we do yoga. Let's see what happens when we do Qigong. Let's see what happens when we sing. How does it affect you? What does it affect you when you look at me and you smile at me and how does it affect you? And then you growl at me and say, how does it affect you? And so to really learn how we affect each other, but also how we can regulate ourselves. And if we don't do that, we be, will become more and more of a drug addicted society. Yeah, because Absolutely. Deeply a post-alcoholic culture where basically say, let it go away by taking something, putting a pill into their mouth. Mm -hmm. And that is not necessary. That's I agree. And, uh, and your R, I love your four R's. <laughs> I think that's great. I, I love the dream because we do. We don't know that. And sometimes because the veterans that are coming back, they don't have that ability to self-regulate because they're traumatized. It ends up affecting their children. And a core issue of trauma is whether we feel safe and have a home to go to that brings us a sense of security. And if children 
of veterans don't feel safe at home because of domestic violence, traumatized veteran parents, addiction, uh, or a combination of these, how much more likely is that child brought up in environment, in this environment, to develop PTSD or health issues when they become adults? Oh, it's huge. I mean, that is really the big issue, is the, the intergenerational tra transmission of trauma. You know, it's the opening story of my book, uh, Liz Stanley, who you may also know, who, who is an army officer who wrote yes. a book. Uh, <laughs> she talks about every generation of my family has fought since the Revolutionary War in some war. And I'm just, an, I was an officer. But there was always, there was always drinking, there was always the violence. And so, just because your parents are in the military uh, and they do terrible things to you, doesn't mean that you won't join the military, because the military was still the glamorous part of their lives. They say, oh, maybe if I join the military, I'll become glamorous also and get that good part of mom or dad, you know, like, uh, uh, but it, it's, it's huge. And, uh, you know, I see this all the time in my practice about people whose parents were off to the war. And, were either absent, which is very painful mm -hmm. to have a dad who just sits there drinking or not doing anything, working all the time. Um, but he, you feel unseen, you feel unloved, you feel unknown, and then the same person blows up from time to time. And it has a huge impact on, on people. Yeah. Do children process traumas differently than adults? Uh, in a way, because they don't have perspective. But they, for, when you're a kid, what you see is what you get. So if something, you also, kids are totally egocentric. So uh, everything is about them. It's a little bit like a president. Like, uh, <laughs> um, and so when something bad happens to a kid, the kid feels like, oh, this is happening because I'm a bad kid. And so every child who I know who has been abused, incorporates that abuse in their self-concept. Mm -hmm. I'm the sort of kid who gets beaten, who gets molested. And there's not a kid who will say, man, I was living in this crazy household. People did these terrible things to me. But I was really a wonderful kid. Mm -hmm. And so part of the treatment of trauma is to actually get to a position where you go like, oh, I was this wonderful kid. Too bad my parents didn't get to really enjoy this wonderful kid. They had a, had a chance and they blew it. <laughs> yeah, they did. Well, I love one of the things that you talk about too, is how to get to a person to a place where they can see that as a child or see yeah. that and then coming in and rescuing them or coming in and holding, I've got you, I'm going to take care of you now and being able to separate themselves from the trauma in such a way that they can come in and take control or, or take back or, or could you talk about that just a little well, bit? You, know, you say it very well. I mean, that is the capacity to actually uh, take care of yourself, your younger self, mm -hmm. is very central. And But we do it also in psychodrama, where somebody, uh, we, we set things up. It's actually my favorite therapeutic practice, where um, you, your parents are in the room, and you have all these feelings with your parents, and then you say, so when you choose somebody who you w wish had been your dad when you were three years old, and you choose that person, and, hope, and we have trained people to be good actors by this time, and you say, how would you like this person to hold you? 
and rage it in the body. And then the person says, if I'd been your dad when you were three years old, I would have held you like that. <laughs> I've been on the receiving end of that also. Um, <laughs> it's a profound experience. And you go like, oh my God, if somebody would have helped me like this, if somebody would have done this. And you start re-scripting your life. Mm. Um, and so uh, I, I'm a much more experiential person than most therapist type people. I think people need to have the experience to feel on a very deep level, oh, that's what it feels like to feel safe. Yeah. Oh, that's what it feels like when somebody cares for you without trying to molest you. Uh, that's what it means when somebody, when you really feel safe with somebody, but on the somatic level almost. Yeah. Does this uh, change the neuroplasticity of our brains when we do things like this? Is it rewire it in ways that, so that we can feel safe, those internal structures in our brain help us to feel safe again? Yeah. See, that's what we postulate. That's what we think happens. Yeah. Of course, nobody at this point is giving this sort of money out. So, so it's interesting, the funding of PTSD is all about to find out how screwed up you are. Oh, that system doesn't work. That system, doesn't work. oh, the, the cytokines, oh, oh, that memory system. And so all this research has been done to find out how deeply messed up you are when you have PTSD. But the money doesn't go into the very question that you ask. Is So when you have these experiences where people say, I now feel safe, uh, what happens in the brain? Mm -hmm. And of course, right now with my new foundation, that is what we hope to to really promote is to really do pre-post studies and not only to see do people feel better, but what happens to these neuronal pathways when when you have these experiences. But up to now, the National Institute of Health and I think the VA have not funded stuff like that. No, they they, they tend to stick with the, uh, evidence-based therapies that... Uh, uh, <laughs> can, I, can I say something about evidence-based therapies? I would love to, yes, but, please. Like, I am, I am as totally in favor of evidence-based treatments. I think we should, if somebody says they have a great technique, I say, show me the data that it works. Yeah. The trouble is, something happened politically, and that's that the world went out for evidence-based. And then about 1995, some of the simplest treatment techniques, people said, oh, I found proven that it works. And then they closed the barn door. And they said, we now have an evidence-based treatment that works better than if you do nothing. That doesn't mean you have a good treatment. It means you have a treatment that is better than doing nothing. <laughs> but at this point, the barn door got closed and people stopped looking for other modes of treatment. And it's just, you know, and now all the people who have these originally, uh, original evidence-based treatments are on the review panels and say, and when you propose something new, you go like, but we already have all the answers because we found this evidence-based treatment. And so with that, the curiosity stops about what else can we do? Mm -hmm. So my friends who do Shakespeare in theater, I don't think they're going to get money to study that. Uh, I am a very serious neurofeedback researcher and have been able to get money together to do three studies on it. Uh, extremely hard to get the money uh, from private sources and my own income and stuff. We showed that neurofeedback is a spectacularly effective treatment. I've gone to NIH seven times 
to get a study funded. That's terrible. Uh, so indeed, we need to develop more evidence-based treatments, but most treatments that we have are pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. I said to learn to have that self-compassionate attitude that is so critical uh, and to really get to, to that place, you don't do that in eight sessions. Breaking <laughs> their finger. <laughs> that takes time. Yeah. Spiritual journey, you know? Yeah. Um, and so uh, at this point, there's, you know, and so my book was very much about it. So say that works and that works and that works. And this is what we know, this is what we don't know yet. Uh, to very much inspire people to really open up their minds to, to explore uh, more and deeper treatments uh, for people. Well, you, what would you recommend? What are some type of therapies that you found to be most effective in helping veterans? Um, I think number one is talking to other veterans. Hmm. I, I think some way of reestablishing the peer group and peer mm -hmm. uh, support is terribly important. Huh? And that's how we started. And one of the things that evolved, which I'm very unhappy about, is that uh, everything became professionalized. So as a fellow Marine, I wouldn't go to you, who knows what it's like to be walking up in the middle of the night. I go to some little social worker who just comes out of school, who doesn't know anything about combat, because she's licensed to do evidence-based treatment. But, you know, so but being with people who really know what it's like, who struggle mm -hmm. with the same issues, is very important. But it shouldn't stop there. Huh? So then you should work together on trying certain things out. Uh, so that's what I've loved so much about the theater groups that I'm involved with, because people have little apps and they communicate with each other on the telephone. Uh, it's, and somebody may say in the middle of the night, you know, I'm just feeling so terrible. I, I feel like kidding myself. But you have a friend who you can contact. <laughs> they will be there for each other. And it's not like, you don't have hundreds of people, you just have a small group of people, just like a platoon in a way. Mm -hmm. and, and so, and then you need to, need to become a therapeutic place where people can learn to share things and to discover things and to find ways of getting better. And so the group may be focusing on learning martial arts or may go on an outward bound program or may go on a music making program or may go on a equine therapy program. Mm -hmm. Equine therapy is wonderful, also. So, so, but, but that, that that peer group continues to be a very important thing throughout life. Well, and they did a lot in the in the when you were first started working with veterans. I think there was a lot of peer groups because I think the Vietnam veterans didn't they organize right. themselves in that way? Right. Kind of gone away from that a little bit. But, uh, see, I, I'm not I'm not so much in touch with sort of the, what's happening right now, but. My sense is that uh, both in the Vietnam community and in the child abuse community and the incest, uh, it's not nearly has does nearly have the sort of peer group support uh, that we had 40 years ago when we started. And I'm, my organization is very much uh, promoting people forming that. And actually, we have a we actually work with some Chinese people who have a peer support system in China consisting of over a million people to teach us how to set up peer support networks in the U.S. What I think about, what I so wonder about peer support groups is that it helps you to break the silence. 
it helps yeah. you to be able to break that because that silence can be deafening and you can be it can crush you yeah. and it could be um it leads you to hopelessness and helplessness and suicide and all those kinds of things. yeah the isolation huh? and, and the shame yes they to blow they, up to do terrible things and we do terrible things i should tell that you, you you hurt other people you get so ashamed of yourself yeah. and so you need to have people who when AA has that, of course, the, the 12 step programs are a very good basic model in, in some ways. What do you think, you know, I know we're coming to the close here on, on, the, on the show today, uh, Dr. Van der Kolk, and, uh, you know, with the veterans that are out there who are suffering from the shame and the stigma that's attached to it, that may be resistant to getting help because it does, it's not... It's not a you know warrior attitude, or, you know strong man, strong woman. How can we help them to get over the stigma to recognize that helping yourself on that internal world is going to help you to be a better warrior, a better father, a better mother, and to help them recognize that the injury is not their fault. Well, that's uh, why I wrote my book in part. You know, like yeah, um, no, it's fantastic. Yeah, I, yeah. like. This is what's going on with you, and here's some options you have. Uh, but I see, and you more, know more about it than I do, I see very good veterans programs everywhere. Uh, they're almost always done by good-hearted people who don't get any support from anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but That's I, so true. <laughs> it's, it's really amazing. Like, I have friends um, who do a theater program in, in Wisconsin. Wonderful theater program um, uh, for veterans, and they say we are allowed to be in the VA. They gave us a room. I said, like what time? From seven to nine every Thursday. We are allowed to be in the VA. I said, are they paying you? No, of course not. So the guy who gives them drugs that don't work gets two hundred dollars an hour, <laughs> but you don't get paid in the theater group. Uh, so uh, it's it's all very troublesome, but but they're there. You know, and so then you get this whole issue of who has the initiative to look for things. And then maybe this is probably what your program is about in some ways. Huh? Like, uh, like when you look, you, I hang out with people called songwriting for soldiers. I hang out with people who do equine therapy, hang out with people, decruit. And so all those things have a website. You just need to find them. You know? <laughs> That's true. What do you think? I mean, have you heard about um, um, SGB Stellat Ganglion Block? Uh, what are your thoughts the about that? Person, the second person this week who asked me that, I, I'm agnostic about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say anything because uh, you know, my skepticals. Skeptic. So, uh, <laughs> um, it's a, it's a high high technique, high high technology technique. Yeah. I am, you know, and that's how I started off li in life also. But I'm very much into uh, creating organisms that can cope. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm very much into helping people. Neurofeedback can do it. Theater can do it. Uh, MDMA can do it to create a new internal environments for themselves so they can cope with things. So when things get too highly technical, it's something that comes from the outside that does something to you. And um, my, my inclination is more, 
let's see what we can do to help you to regulate these things by yourself without putting stuff inside of you. Yeah. yeah. That's my basic prejudice. But boy, if it works, go for it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, I am in alignment with what you're saying is that being allowing your, your spirit, your soul, your mind, your body, your heart to become larger than the experience itself. Yeah. So that you can contain it all, so that it's it's your your own agency, your own power, that is able to. Um, but sometimes a pill to get a good night's sleep can be very helpful. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. What do you think are the good? What is uh, the essence of a good uh, at the core of good trauma therapy? I mean, what should people look for? Is it? Uh, what's the the essence of it? You think? The essence is to really get to know you. I think, there, who are you? What are your experiences? What it's like for you? Uh, and what were you hoping you would become? And what, what has come of it? And to really get to know yourself, somebody who really is curious about you mm-hmm. and helps you to find language for who you are mm-hmm. uh, with all the bells and whistles, etc., etc., And then, after really getting to know who you are, to find out, so that isn't working and that isn't working. And somebody who has a number of different techniques, as it were, to work with people. Uh, the techniques, to my mind, are very much knowing about work with the body, which people don't learn in school. Nope. You get lessons, so you need to get trained in that afterwards. Uh, I find EMDR as a basic technique incredibly helpful. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not, oh, if you just do EMDR, everything will get resolved. But EMDR is a very helpful thing for many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so EMDR is helpful. And then hopefully, uh, and also somebody who understands that we are complex creatures and that you're not just a soldier and you're not just uh, an angry guy. And you're not just a compassionate person who runs the radio show. <laughs> the person you see right now is not the person who your wife knows. But she also knows <coughs> that you have an angry part mm-hmm. and a controlling part and a, and a scary, scary part, you know. And so we are very complex creatures. And to know that different parts of us come out under different circumstances. Mm-hmm. And to get to know uh, the complex creatures that live inside of us and how we try to cope with the world and how we got to cope with the world. So, so, so there's a long explanation of uh, something called internal family system therapy, where you work with the internal system that mm-hmm. we all live with. Is it, do you think it's uh, important for us to be able to get to the truth to be able to speak the truth of what happened to us? And do we have to be re-traumatized to do that? Can we eventually get to a place? Is that important in our, in our healing? Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think coming to the truth is important. To be able to at least say to yourself, this is what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And this is what, how I behaved. And also, one of the hardest things about trauma is not so much what happened to you, but how you reacted to it. 
that you blew up or committed atrocities or did terrible things or didn't step up or were too scared to intervene where you should have intervened. And to really go there and to say, yeah, uh, at that point in my life, I could not do any better than I did. And I feel very disappointed that I, back then, but now I would behave differently. But to really develop the sense of self-compassion for who you were when you did not know mm -hmm. how to find a solution. It's brilliant. Imagine <laughs> if I knew what I know now, <laughs> back then, yeah. how you would have done things differently. It's such a big thing. I mean, I, I can't tell you how, you know, when my healing process and when I had to, that was like, if I knew what I knew, no, but you had to go through all of that stuff to get to know what you know well, now, to be able to look back. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, Dr. Van de Kool, this has been an honor. Uh, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. I just have one last question before we sign off for today. Uh, it has been such an honor. Um, Dr. Van de Kolk, if you could give one piece of advice, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be? I think what comes to mind, there's this, this line from a poet, that you just have to learn to love that creature inside of yourself. You don't have to prove anything. And that to really, our job in life is to take care of that creature that we inhabit. Mm -hmm. that nobody else is going to do it for us. Huh? So we need to take care of this, this person who you may think is a piece of shit right now. The only thing you, only thing you <laughs> take care of it, man. Just like, what does this creature need? You know, uh, not in terms of just exciting things, but what fundamentally, just like when you have a baby, this baby needs to be held, needs to be nurtured, needs to, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end, it's really uh, learning to take care of this creature. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, it has been an honor and a privilege. Folks, the body keeps a score. It is outstanding. Uh, he is the best in the world. Uh, and so... And uh, folks, thank you so much for tuning in to the council. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. God bless. Thank you. Take care.